Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey everyone, if you are listening to this right now, I can only assume you listened to our full episode with Robert Forster that we released on Tuesday. Uh, If you have not, I would urge you to check that out. I thought it was uh, a good conversation. It was was fun and interesting uh, and insightful and profound in all the ways you hope uh, Robert Forster would be. Uh, It's also strange because we talked for two hours at his morning breakfast spot in West Hollywood. And rarely do you have two-hour conversations that uh, are consistently fascinating. But I think, for, you know, this is my opinion and, and my humble opinion. I I think uh, it was all interesting. So we decided to, to uh, divvy it up a little bit and put out this 20, 25 minutes of conversation, which came at the end of our talk. Um, for those who don't know, Forrester uh, does inspirational, I, I don't know if you would call him inspirational, heartwarming, uh, revealing, and thoughtful speeches and lectures around the country. Um, it's a thing called an like a menu. He has a menu of sorts where you open it up. You can see it online, which uh, you should check out. And there's just categories. And they're all really fascinating character- categories from like childhood to changing diapers to working with Marlon Brando. And so at the end of our talk... I decided to open up that menu and pick the five or six things that I thought were particularly fascinating. So uh, here is Robert Forrester once again on Talk Easy. Thank you all for listening and have a great weekend. Marlon's Good Deed. Marlon's Good Deed. In 1928, 
sound comes along. Before sound, they've been making picture only and, um, and uh, putting uh, um, uh, um, um, words at the bottom of or uh, the panels of words that you know what the characters are saying. But in 1928, sound comes along, and now it's 20, 38, 48, 58, 68. Forty years later, I'm working on a set with uh, Gregory Peck. We're out in the desert. It's quiet. The sound department has held sway for 40 years. They told everybody what to do because sound was hard to get. Mm. And everybody had to be quiet. And there was a sound mixer. They called him a mixer because he sat there with dials. And your microphone was on when you were speaking. And he's going by the script in his little sound truck. And the other actor's sound um, um, microphone is is down. And when the other guy speaks, he spins them in the opposite direction so that your microphone is up. And then mine is down. And so I'm on the set in 1968. We're out in the desert. Uh, it's quiet. I do a scene with Gregory Peck. He's up on a horse. I'm down on the bottom. I tell him that the bad guy is coming after him. And he'd better watch out. At the end of the shot, the director, Robert Mulligan, big director, he directed um, um, Gregory Peck and the other great big one, To Kill a Mockingbird. Now this is the stalking moon. Right. Mulligan says, cut, and from the sound truck, which is about 50 yards away, 40 yards away, from the sound truck, you hear Jack Solomon, an old sound guy, say, Hey, Forster! You can't see him, but you hear his voice. <laughs> Everybody is looking at the sound, sound truck or me. And I say to him, what, Jack? From the sound truck, he yells out, just remember this. A good actor is a loud actor. <laughs> the sound department pushed actors around from the, from the beginning of their tenure in movie making. And Marlon Brando's good deed was that 20 years prior and with James Dean and with two or three other actors who fought back against the sound department, who, who, uh, who did what was used to be called, they mumbled and you can't hear them and da-da-da-da. And, and the sound department always had bad things to say about uh, actors who did not speak up. And so Marlon's good deed was that he started the trend toward naturalistic believable behavior acting right not just pushing the pushing the plot with dialogue they brando and others um did acting that was believable and more naturalistic and so his good deed was starting the trend which even in 1968 20 years after he came on the scene in 1948 uh, or 1950 with uh, the wild one uh, um, and uh, and uh, and so uh, now, of course, sound is easy. You never hear anything from the sound department. They put a microphone on you. They stick the, the transmitter in your pocket. Right. And you never hear from them uh, all day long. And they get generally perfect sound. So mm. the sound equipment has improved. No longer are guys like Jack Solomon yelling at actors. A good actor is a loud actor. 
and uh, and I can tell you that the uh, that the business of acting has been improved and changed by Marlon and others who uh, started uh, pushing back against the sound department. Can you tell me what quitting smoking is? Quitting smoking. It's if you are a smoker and which you uh, were. Oh sure, everybody was a smoker. Um. And uh, have ever tried to quit, you know that it's not easy. You know that uh, you've people who've tried quitting uh, sometimes quit and go back and uh, sometimes uh, take patches and uh, take drugs and uh, hypnosis and you name it, whatever, whatever people have tried. I certainly tried several times to quit and went back to smoking until I got this piece of advice from my father-in-law. He said... Take a piece of paper and draw a line down the center. On one side, put the reasons you want to smoke, and there are some. And on the other side, put the reasons that you want to quit, and there are some. And you keep that piece of paper in a uh, drawer. And whenever you uh, um, uh, think of some new reason, you put it down. And sooner or later, you realize that the list is very short on one side and very long on the other. There's (laughs) lots and lots and lots of reasons to quit smoking. And at a certain moment, you are going to say, yep, I want to quit. Today, I want to quit. And you do. But you keep that paper. You don't throw it away because sooner or later, uh, you may need it again. On the day that you quit, you do this. After five minutes or ten or an hour, you'll want a cigarette. And, uh, And what you'll do is take a deep breath very deep deep breath and cleansing breath and 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 exhale all the way down then take a second deep deep breath and hold it and hold it and hold it and hold it and when you can't hold that breath any longer the need for that particular cigarette will be gone Now, it may only last a few minutes or it may last a while longer, but every time you have a need for a cigarette, you'll take that second cleansing breath and hold it, and when you can't hold it any longer, the need for that particular cigarette will be gone. Mm. You do that, and eventually it stretches out into a day of not smoking and then a week of not smoking and then a month of not smoking and then a year of not smoking, And if you're ever tempted, you should go to that piece of paper because somewhere along the line, the last thing you wrote was, do not even take one cigarette because you'll go right back to smoking. (laughs) So um, you, you, uh, you don't want to put in those days and weeks and months. You only want to do that once so that you don't have to put in those hard days Right. Um, any uh, more than once. When was the last time you smoked? Oh, uh, uh, August 2nd, 1990 wow. is the last time I smoked. Now, I've done two movies in which I had to take a couple of hits of a cigarette and did. But uh, that did not that make count. me back into a, a smoker, no. Let's do a couple more of these and then... Uh, you bet. Tell me... Uh, JFK conspiracy. There was a time when 80% of people who were surveyed believed that there was a conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy. Right. I do not subscribe to that. You were in the 20%. I'm in the 20%. 
And let's see, I used to have this thing fairly well um, thought out, but I'm going to try to remember what it was that I used to say. First thing I said was that um, uh, Benjamin Franklin tells us, yes, uh, three people can keep a lie if two of them are dead. (laughs) He reminds us that nobody can keep a secret. And we are asked to believe that all the conspirators went to their grave right. never saying, honey, I know that we wanted our son to go to a, an Ivy League school, and here's uh, I'm going to give you a piece of information that if you go tell any journalist, uh, they'll give you a million dollars for it. Right. Um, this is how we did it. Uh, it was Sam and Bob, and we went, and, uh, <laughs> and he was the guy that shot from the grassy knoll, and then there was the guy that grabbed the brain, and uh, his name was such and such. And Sam and, and Bob on the grassy Sam knoll. Sam and Bob, yes, uh, they were the ones that did it. And, uh, and so... You uh, you you got to ask yourself uh, if all these guys uh, were involved, and there had to be a lot of people involved right. in this. Everyone went to their death and never said a word about it. Otherwise, forty some years later, or fifty, whatever it's been, uh, we would be in knowledge of whatever happened on that day, uh, and the the uh, the conspiracy would be would be un, unveiled by now because on both sides of the political spectrum each side would love to pin his murder on the other side everybody would love to know who the uh, killers were and if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't Oswald who was it and who was involved if you have never been to Dallas and I worked in Dallas a couple of times with a with another actor who we were both curious and we went up to the sixth floor museum uh, at the book depository right where uh, Oswald shot from right now if you go there you realize that you can see right out the window there is where the car drove and there was a newspaper uh, a diagram a day or two before showing where the where the motorcade would go they would go up that way then they would make a turn and they would make a turn down and drive right down slowly in front of this building and I'm sure that this guy who was a nut, uh, Oswald, said to himself, God, a guy with a gun could probably shoot him from here, and decided to do it. Now, if there's anything more to it than that, uh, I, I do not know what it could be. If you've ever been there to, that, uh, uh, to the sixth floor, you realize they will not let you stand in the exact window that he shot from, but Why they'll not? let you, well, because it's set up as a display. But in the very next window, it's an arched brick window. And if you had a good arm and an orange, you could have thrown it as far as his shot. It's a very easy shot to make. And this guy had a scope and a gun, and he shot him two out of three times. It's no mystery how this guy shot that guy's gun. Um, and, um, and if you are wondering uh, what the what the uh, motivation for people to write lies about this realize that this is you're sitting in Hollywood where there are fiction writers everywhere <laughs> trying to make a great story out of a set of facts so you can bet that billions with a B billions of dollars have been made on books 
and magazine articles and movies and you name it. There are so many ways in which that event has been exploited by writers to keep the 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 fiction alive that he was killed uh, with some conspiracy. If there is a conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy, it would by now have been uh, revealed. So I am among the 20%. I ran into uh, Vince Bugliosi, uh, who wrote a 1,500-page book destroying every possible uh, argument that could be made for why a, a, um, uh, a, a conspiracy did not exist to kill John Kennedy. So those writers were motivated by self-interest? Self-interest. There it is. There it is. Last one for you is... Uh, Dad and me in Africa. There's really no good. There's there's no good uh, punchline to this except that my father, who spent uh, his early years in the 1930s on the Ringling Circus, he was uh, one of ten brothers. They were loggers. One of ten brothers. One of ten brothers, and they had been uh, up in, or some of them had been up in the Canadian woods one winter, the winter of maybe 32 or 33. They spent the winter uh, chopping wood, and in the spring, when the river breaks up, when the ice on the river breaks up, they float all the logs that they've cut down to the sawmill. He said that when the uh, river drive was finished that spring, he and a friend of his, they were both young guys, uh, hitchhiked down uh, to New York State, and he said uh, they got let off in Albany, New York, and he said uh, the first thing he saw was wringling paper. He said... Ah, the paper, the, 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 the circus is coming to town. Let's join the circus, he said to the other guy. And the other guy, and he thought it was a great idea, so they went to the, to, uh, to the lot and uh, tried to join the circus. And, of course, they wouldn't have them. Um, he said, but they trailed the show for a couple of days, and uh, finally they let him on doing the job, uh, the job of humping Bibles. Humping Bibles. What is that? He said to himself. And at the end of the show, when the audience is pouring out of the front gate, a gang of guys rushes in from the back gate and starts tearing down the bleachers. Um, and when they and when they get to the bleachers that that uh, uh, that have the folding chairs that for an extra 10 cents you could have a folding chair you didn't have to sit on a bleacher you could sit on a folding chair that cost an extra dime and he said that when guys uh, got down after they had uh, taken all of the the planks that rep that were uh, that that were the bleachers he said the two planks that the folding chairs sit on are called Bibles. They are hinged down the middle and fold. And he said that a guy at each end would fold them and lift them up, and he would uh, shoulder them and carry them out to a, um, a waiting wagon. He said that the guy he was working with told him, grab a few of those uh, popcorn boxes and put them on your shoulder to cushion the... Uh, the he said they're very heavy. And um, and uh, that usually separated the guys who were going to last on the circus from the guys who found it far too hard. But he was a logger, so, you know, there was nothing too hard for those guys. He said that at the end of the job, he asked the guy he was working with, he said, uh, why do they call these Bibles? 
Humping, we understand that. Do you carry something? Do you hump it to some place? He said, why do they call them Bibles? And the guy said, because they fold up like a book, and they'll put you down on your knees. They call them Bibles, these big, long planks. And that's the entry level of, um, of being on the circus. He said that the following year he wanted to work with the cats. He said, but there were no openings, so he put in for the bull department, the elephants. They're, they're all females, but they call them bulls. And he, for the next several years, was on the ringling until almost until World War II, uh, working the elephants. So, in his later life, uh, when he was around 70, I, uh, I said, let's go to Sarasota and we'll just pay a little visit to uh, where you, where you were uh, winter quarters in Sarasota. He had always wanted to see where the big game came from. Uh, and so we went to Florida and, uh, and, uh, and, and we were into circus at the time. Um, and so I got a job in South Africa. And I said to him, look, when I finish the job in South Africa, you fly from Rochester, we'll meet in Nairobi, we will take a tour. And so for two weeks, we were on a tour with, um, uh, you know, with a tour company. Uh, and uh, he saw where the big game comes from. By the way, almost all elephants used in circus are Indian elephants. They are not, they're Asian elephants. They're not African elephants. Uh, the Asian elephants are smarter and, um, and more manageable. African elephants are rougher to work with and uh, do not mix well with, with Asian elephants. So they're all Asian elephants. But he was dying to see where, uh, where it was. Uh, what the big game was uh, like, and so we uh, we spent our time there. Now we were out on. Here comes finally the uh, the me and Dad in Africa. <laughs> the, we were out on a game run. They have two game runs: one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And as it's getting to be uh, twilight, we are heading back to camp in a uh, in a vehicle uh, that uh, you've probably seen them. There were probably around eight or nine people in it, the driver and uh, several other people, and everybody's got cameras, and we're taking pictures, and it's a long day, and we're heading back, and the driver, who was our guide, looks off to the right, and it's, it's, very, it's twilight, it's, you can't see much, and he says, Simba, he points, and nobody could see what he was talking about, he said, lions, and we asked him to slow down and stop. And yes, there they are. He said, they are stalking. And we watched them, and they were still, and they were lions waiting for something to come by, or they were stalking some gazelle, some, some antelope that were nearby. And someone in the, in the party said, drive over there, drive over there. He says, no, 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 we don't go off the road. He said, oh, come on, nobody else is around. Everybody's back in camp. So he drove off the road about 60 yards toward these lions. They didn't budge. They were intent on their target, which was these antelope. And as we got close enough, everybody took pictures, low light, and finally um, we, uh, he says, we got to go. We got to go. It's almost dark. 
And so we started to drive away, and we immediately got buried in the sand. We got bogged down in the sand. Now, the vehicle won't go. The The lions are right there. They're only uh, 12 or 15 feet from the from the vehicle, and now we are we can't move. We he says you're gonna he has got a shovel. He says you're gonna have to dig us out, and so uh, we got to get rid of the lions, and so we start banging on the side of uh, you know reaching out the window and banging on the side of the vehicle, and the lions do not budge. Somebody got something. I don't know what it was, but something, and they, like a, like a canister from a film can, a little film canister, and threw it at the lion. Finally, it hit the lion, and he jumped, and the other one jumped, and they ran away, these two lions. Well, we get out of the vehicle, we get the, the, the shovel, we shovel out the, uh, the wheels, and, um, and, we, and we all get back in the vehicle, and he starts again, and we immediately get bogged down. We get out of the vehicle. Guys get behind the vehicle. There were about four guys, my father and I and two other guys, and there were several women. And we and the guys pushed the vehicle and got it moving, and then we got into the vehicle, and we started again, and we got bogged down immediately. Okay, so this time, look, I've been in snow. I know what snow is like. You cannot stop. Once you start moving, you cannot stop. you got to keep the thing moving. So we, the four guys, my father and two others and me, get out of the vehicle once again and start pushing the vehicle. It's almost dark, and we get the vehicle moving, and we say to the driver, keep going, keep going. He's driving back toward the road. He gets to the road, and then he turns around to us and starts screaming, run, run, run. And he says, they're stalking on you. And we looked around, and there the two lions that we had chased away were stalking on us. They were looking at us, and, uh, and we were walking. And now I had seen a nature show, and I knew that, they, that when you're walking away from them, they are not going to uh, go after you until they... Unless you are closing the distance between them. Lions are not very fast. They can't run for a long time, unlike cheetahs and others that have a lot of distance. But lions got to make a fast attack. And and we were four guys together, and we had the shovel. I had the shovel. And I didn't think we were in any real trouble. And we walked back. And my father was an old guy. And we walked back to the truck. And when we got back to the vehicle, the guy said, no, not those lions. And now he's pointing to the lions that are much closer to us. And when he turned on the lights, there were all these eyes uh, which shine back at you uh, of these lions that were in front of us, which uh, not very far from us. We all got back in the vehicle. Nobody got hurt. It was obviously uh, not a deadly situation, but uh, be good, Michael. Um, but uh, that is the uh, that's the only and, and and the only reason it's on the menu is because my cousin Frank said I love that story you got to put it on the menu, uh, but there's no real good punchline there except that uh, you know having watched a uh, a nature show I thought we were, uh, were were pretty safe. I think I think I'm I think you made it out alive. We made it out alive. Yeah. The tradition of breaking tradition continues 
with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.